0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Taste Washington. With more than 235 wineries, 65 restaurants, and some of the nation's most talented chefs, Taste Washington is the ultimate taste test. Learn more at tastewashington.org.
0: I'm HRN's Communications Director Kat Johnson with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Valentine's Day. Whether it's your favorite day of the season or you avoid it like the plague, there's no debating. It's a big day for the world of food and hospitality.
2: Valentine's Day is what we uh, refer to in the industry as a blackout day. I don't feel... That My manlyhood is threatened when I order a glass of rosé or, God forbid, a rosé champagne.
3: It's an old Jamaican drink from way
2: back, and we just decided to bring it back into existence. It's a drink that the men, they believe it really does wonders.
0: Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's M-E-A-T, plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today, we are going to explore some recent history tied to some old history. And it's all about lamb. The Jameson Farm in western Pennsylvania is 210 acres of wonderful scenic farmland that produces about 3,000 lambs annually, um, and it's been claimed to be some of the best lamb in the country. But when Suki and John Jameson purchased the old form farmhouse over 40 years ago, they, did, they had no idea that they would become game-changing farmers, let alone being named Conservation Farmers of the Year in 2017. As sheep farmers, they learned techniques that harked back to historic methods, which have roots in pre-industrial and European farming. And after many trials and tribulations, their lamb gained traction and was declared the best in the country by some of the top-named chefs in the country. They have a customer list that reads like a who's who in the food world and they've written down their experiences, stories and recipes in a new book called Coyotes in the Pasture and Wolves at the Door. And they're here with me in the studio to talk all about those experiences. Welcome both of you. Great. All Thank right, you. listen, you were you were high school street sweethearts or college sweethearts. Anyway, you go back a long time, <laughs> a long <laughs> way, yes. Right. And and both in the same school as English majors and now you've produced the country's best lamb for over forty years. What What happened? Tell us your story. Oh
3: boy, oh boy. <laughs> Suki wanted to so Suki. Suki bought, Suki wanted to start uh, we had a the first farm we had was uh, smaller than the one we have right now, but the guy wouldn't sell an old stone farmhouse to us unless we bought the sixty five acres that were with us that were with it. And so uh, we didn't know what to do with it, and Suki wanted to have a 4-H project for the kids. <laughs> so that's really where it
4: started. It's a lot of work for a couple of kids. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you so the story goes on that you got a couple of few, a couple hundred, or few sheep. Hundred? What did you start out with? We started out with. 14 11, 14 total so 14 and this is back what in 1976 76 all right yeah. We first um, learned about sheep. yes so when you finally then you know got to the wheels and we'll get back to the processes right. um, you, you went around and you tried to like the, you mentioned the 4-h fair and um, you went around and tried to get people to taste your lamb because you knew it tasted a lot better and what what were their reactions? Well, I was
5: doing some catering, and we used some of the lamb meat mm-hmm. in my catering, and people
4: really liked it. Mm-hmm. So that oh, but I thought at first when they did, t- nobody wanted to taste lamb because they were so used to the well the, the American as far as the American palate. Yeah, yeah. Back
5: then, it was maybe one in ten people would even eat lamb.
4: Yeah, it wasn't really a a real popular meat. Um, it was always
5: considered a very high end, expensive. They only ate the rack. Or the
4: loin chop, mm-hmm. but prior to that, they were getting. <clears throat> I know when as a kid we didn't eat it because my mother had such a bad taste in her mouth from it. They what they ate probably was mutton, probably old.
3: Well, it old was lamb. <clears throat> It was older, and then the other the other situation going back to uh, to uh, the production methods now versus how it was a very long time ago is that <clears throat> since uh, since World War II basically. Um, Lamb has been born in the western states and then sent back after after the lambs are weaned off the mothers. They then go to feedlots in the Midwest and they're fed a lot of corn and the oil from the corn goes to the fat. And that's why people say lamb is greasy. So that's the way we've been doing in this country for a long, long time. And Mm -hmm. people uh it's it's a cloying taste, and people really don't like it and so, when we started raising on grass just because we were interested in raising them on grass, uh, then we had some chefs try it, and they liked it and and because that's how it's raised really in every other part of the country of the world of the world right yeah yeah
4: right um you think of of um sheep herders and by and large, it's more ethnic populations. You, you know the Basque yes. regions and, and the Eastern European regions. in right. I mean, there, and and Sardinia and <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. oh you're right Sicilian yeah all yeah. And, and go on.
3: Well, and, and so so with us when we started when we first started selling to uh, to French chefs, they <clears throat> they really wanted milk lamb. Or as the French say, agno delay, but I can't pronounce it very well. They did very well. Thank <laughs> you. But anyway, the, uh, when you think about it, the main reason for having sheep in southern Europe is really for cheese because real, real uh, Roquefort is sheep's cheese. Um, uh, Pecorino Romano is sheep's cheese. And so they have to pull the lambs off to milk the ewes, the mothers, and so those chefs are used to using a lot of, of smaller lamb. Hmm. And and so that was really, because we were raising them ourselves, um, That that's where we first started dealing with some of the heavyweight guys.
4: Okay, well now let's go back to the time that you bought that house. Your right. idea was to restore this really quaint stone right. farmhouse, right? What happened?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, that... The house didn't fall down around us, but it became it became obvious that that was going to be a very expensive issue to try to do much. So we got much more interested in the farm. We had a guy farming it, and that's what started everything.
4: And you looked at all the tall grass and all the mowing that had to be done?
3: Yeah. It was, uh, it was better to have animals do it.
4: <laughs> okay, so you got those few... We sheep. got those few sheep, sheep, sheep and got started with it, and they they ate the grass. What made you decide to raise sheep as lambs as meat and not go into the milking end of it, or you know, solely wool or whatever?
5: At that time, milk sheep in Amer- America were there weren't not really that available. Popcorn.
4: Oh, they weren't available.
5: back. fact, oh. really, not that many.
3: Yeah, the proper breeds were not available. Because then. it
5: would be a, a specific breed that would be applicable for huh. Interesting. milking sheep. Interesting.
4: Yes. And then the, the the ewes that you um, acquired to produce? Were basically
5: a meat breed.
4: Okay. Interesting to know. I can and see the a, extent of my farm of background. <laughs> yeah,
5: they have the wool breeds and they have uh-huh. the meat breeds.
4: Yeah, interesting. So there you got the the meat the meat used to produce the uh, They the do lambs. produce
5: wool also, but it's not of a fine quality.
4: But it can be used, right? It, I mean, can, it can be used, be yeah. but it's
5: not the high quality of what you would get from a wool sheep. Hmm. Okay. So those exotic blends of wool that you see in crafts and things
4: like that are from exotic breeds of sheep. Yeah. Very finely uh, yes. combed as well, I'm sure. Right. Um well when as you as you're what do you call it? Uh, your flock. Yes. Grew. Flock the, think, is good. Burr, gaggle. No, it's a flock. Flock right. is right. It grew. Um, uh, one thing that surprised me in reading—I have to say—your book is filled with such charming stories. I was talking to Sue you earlier, you. charming. Yeah. Sometimes painful. Yes. yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, yes. Where Tears want to fall, but you know. But and and humorous. But but they are very charming stories because you get one gets a real sense of the land where you're living and, and how, if anyone should think you want to go into this business or yeah. go into farming as a business, you might second that, think exactly. it. Exactly, <laughs> yes. Um, but one thing that struck me, you were talking about, um, you know, as you doubled and tripled and quadrupled your flock. Right. What about the ratio? Somebody had asked you that, I think, in one of your stories. What is the ratio of... of Rams to use
3: <laughs> So so the story should I tell the story? Sure. I assume what she's setting me up for is one of my favorite stories in the book that everybody wants me to tell. All the time is the story by Jean-Louis Paladin, who was uh, our mentor, really, and was his claim to fame was um, that he was at the time the youngest French chef. Ever to get two Michelin stars, he was only 28, which now, is a huge deal.
4: For those of you listening who have no recollection of Jean-Louis, he was, well, first of all, he was a wild man. <laughs> he was
3: a wild man, thank you, <laughs> but yes. But
4: I, I, I absolutely <laughs> adored him, and <clears throat> and a wonderful chef, Yes, but also very generous, a yes. very generous person in many ways. In many, many ways. So, in, I, I just... As a, Explanation. So go no, on. <laughs> well, that's
3: right, and and he was and he discovered us uh, when we were doing a uh, well, our name when we were doing a um, a benefit for Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. He was one of the one of the chefs selected, but, but we hadn't met him yet. This was in May of uh, of eighty eight, <clears throat> uh, and I knew he was going to do this dinner in um, uh, in October. And so I sent him some information about our lamb, and he called me on Memorial Day of '88 and ordered lamb, and that's a whole nother story. But the fall, which I will get back to, but uh, in the uh, in the following year, we were doing another benefit, the same benefit for Children's Hospital, and he came to the farm, and um, Suki cooked for him, and she was very nervous because. She was cooking for the only two star Michelin chef in the country <laughs> at that time cooking. I, I lunch. would be
4: nervous too. <laughs> I was nervous.
3: So it was and she had shanks and they were absolutely wonderful. And um, but anyway, uh Jean Louis had been wined and dined uh for three days in Pittsburgh and as you said he was very charming and a lot of fun and a wild man. And so he uh he looked like he had been winded nine for three days, and so we went down. He wanted to go down to the barn. All these PR ladies wanted to talk to Suki about how beautiful the farm was, or the house and the farm, the farmhouse and the farm. And I took him down to the barn, and he looked at the lambs and said how beautiful they were, and we were both crying about how wonderful both of us were. And anyway, we walk outside. We walk out of the barn. And uh, uh, he saw the, the ewes on the hill, and uh, all the sheep on the hill, and he said, How many sheeps on the hill? And I said, Oh, with everybody about 700. And then he said, How many mommies? <laughs> and I said, 400. And he said, How many daddies? And I counted what I'd taken out, and I said, Four. <laughs> and he looked, and his eyes changed, and his his whole his whole bearing changed, and he just went ooh la la. And that, was, that was that. But usually it's one to one ram to about fifty to a hundred. But these mm. were what we call clean up rams, so they were you know just there to. See who Make was sure. still interested. That's right. <laughs> oh,
4: that's, that is that is a great story. <laughs> funny. Thank you. And he loved your lamb, and he was very he helpful in uh, he was spreading the word to his uh, to the other. Well, at that time, what people have to understand there was this, as you called you called it very accurate, sort of this mafia. of Yeah, this French is a chefs. French mafia. They really they. I mean, the French, and because I worked with a French woman, and I and I got to know many of them because they all. Really stuck together. They did stick together,
3: yeah. and 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 he was when you, I forget the word you used, louis but he was very, uh, uh, very, uh, very nice. Well, he asked me the night that I delivered the lamb, and he thought it was so beautiful. He started crying. And and he he said to me, he said, "How big do you want to get?" And he called up all his friends. Wow! And that's really what happened.
4: Wow! That that'll grow the business oh, it won't. quickly. It did. Yeah. It did. Well, they, I mean, that was when we were, you know, we were on the the cusp we as being America of of this new food movement. Yes, um, right. And He was
5: there for the very
4: beginning. Absolutely, of that. he was. Absolutely, very instrumental. Right, and as were many of the French chefs and Danielle is still is yes. still there. Still going He's still strong. around, still going strong, right? Yep. Uh, Daniel Boulud. Right. Um, all right, so that was by then your lamb was good. You knew it was good and, and right. the chefs were discovering it was good. But you were doing something that was rather unusual. You just described earlier about the whole feedlot right. method of kind of mass production yes. of lamb. And you were taking a few steps back in history, we can say, but yes. in, in farming history, and you, were, and you were embracing another technique. Tell me about how you had decided to raise and feed your flock.
3: Land. Well, <clears throat> there, were, there were various factors involved. The land-grant colleges, like Penn State, uh, wanted wanted everything grown on... They were worried about... They were concerned with um, uh, how much it costs to feed them, the average cost per pound, and but with no interest in what the animal tastes like. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was in 74, we had the Arab oil embargo, and the Arab oil embargo pushed up grain prices in this country. So at that time, people... Uh, Interestingly enough, in our part of the country before any other part of the country, started raising animals on grass to supplement the the um, uh, feed that they were buying on grain, trying to keep the average costs down, the inputs. They were trying to keep the inputs down. The reason it started in our part of the country is because we had... Um, uh, high tensile fencing. High tensile fencing started um, from New Zealand, and then it came over to this country. And with high tensile fencing, we could subdivide fences so we could rotate the animals around. And the, the first steel company, and the biggest one, that makes high tensile smooth wire is U.S. steel in Pittsburgh. And so it all started in Pittsburgh and western sense. Pennsylvania. Yeah. And so that, we got very interested in that. Uh, and then uh, uh, at the same time, uh, so the, the basic textbook to it is a, is a book called Grass Productivity by Andre Voisin, and that was in the 50s. He wrote this, and, and this kind of production had been going on for hundreds of years, but he broke it down into a science, mm. into a system. And so it was putting a lot of animals on a small area for a short period of time. And, and we had when we started it, we would put about 250 ewes with their lambs on two acres for two days. And they would go in, and the the grass would be ten to twelve inches high, and after two days, it was two inches high. <laughs> and by doing that, by eating the grass down, this is real quick. As she told me I'm not allowed to go on with this, but anyway, it's a quickie. Is that is that the animals go in, eat all the grass down? The grass, since it's now eaten down. Exposes the white clover, which is the natural legume in our soil, above 6 pH acidity level.
4: Which is usually used like a ground cover, right? That's right. It keeps low.
3: Yeah, exactly. And so because it's now exposed because the animals have eaten it down, then being a legume, it fixes nitrogen from the air and then grows more grass. So it's a system. So what you do, so they eat everything down. The the um, uh, legume is bringing nitrogen into the soil, and you take the animals off that for 20 to 40 days, let's say, depending on what time of the year it is. In April, May, in our area, it's only 20 days because the grass is growing so fast. Right. And so that's what we do. So they're all raised on grass on our, on our uh, farm, uh, you see pictures in the book about how beautiful the grass is. We have never seeded anything, nothing, ever.
4: Wow. That's, That's really something. Good soil, good good grass, good well, good treatment of the yep. soil, right? right. Well, André Voisin was one of the names I had that I wanted to make sure you mentioned and talked about who Thank he you. was. Yeah. The other one is um, <laughs> Louis Bromfield. How was he, What? what who is he, and, and how does that figure in your Learning all these new techniques, or learning how to farm.
3: You want me to start on Bromfield? Or? You
4: talk about the so Bromfield. Bromfield. <laughs> He's from
3: Ohio. So, so. yeah, the, so the so we were both English majors in college. So Bromfield was one of the expats between the war in Paris, uh, friend of uh, Alice B. Toklas and, and Hemingway and Fitzgerald, and so for English majors, how cool is that? <laughs> and so anyway, he also. Hosted the marriage of uh, Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart at his house in uh, in Ohio, but uh, on his farm. On On his his farm, farm. yeah, at Malabar Farm. And and what he did was he was uh, as I said he was an expat in Paris during that time period of all that great writing. And uh, in thirty eight or thirty nine, he saw what was happening with the war, oncoming war, and he moved back. To his home area of Mansfield, Ohio, and uh, bought old four or five old worn-out farms and restored them. And he funded that by being a screenwriter in Hollywood. That's <laughs> how he knew uh, Bogart. They mm-hmm. became good friends. But um, he was he did a lot in. After he moved back to Ohio, he really concentrated on the farms and wrote a lot about them and had, had farming methods that were, uh, we probably wouldn't say organic, but certainly sustainable. And he used grass a lot to restore the pastures. Well, really to restore the whole farm. Before, he would break soil, but he always uh, kept it in grass and hay for four or five years before he did that.
4: Hmm. Well there are so well for me there's so much to to learn and enjoy about the stories but we're going to come back and talk about some of those as well as the food that is prepared in the kitchens at the farm and um, right after a short break so stay tuned <laughs>
1: This episode is brought to you by New York Mutual Trading, the premier Japanese food, alcoholic beverage, and restaurant supply specialist. Mutual Trading is the Japanese food authority, true to the heart in upholding genuine Japanese food traditions and progressive in exploring new ways to provide innovative restaurant supplies and services. They import, export, distribute and manufacture the top brands for retailer and food service customers nationwide. Learn more at nymtc.com.
2: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Andrew Friedman, and I'm the host of Andrew Talks to Chefs here on HRN. Every week, I interview a diverse cross-section of the best and biggest names in professional cooking. Give a listen and get to know all about the inner lives of chefs. You can find Andrew Talks to Chefs wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm going
4: to trade with the French. What? No. True. Hi, we're back, and I am speaking with John Jameson and Suki Jameson of Jameson Farms, the one of the premier lamb producers in America. And... We were talking about the wonderful grasses and and how you know you gotta gotta do it right to be able to get keep that grass go- growing. Otherwise, you end up with dirt lots, right? Right. Yeah. Um, but then there's another factor in all that that maybe is a word that of course is is bandied about quite a bit these days in foods. We heard it in wines forever, and that's terroir and tasting the terroir in in different foods and talk about the the lamb production where how this enters into it
3: well i uh, <clears throat> in in southwest pennsylvania in the uh, 1900 um the largest merino. that's where the largest merino flocks in the country were mm. and now we're
4: talking wool right
3: now we're talking wool but we're talking we're still talking about sheep production and we're talking about the fact that the grass was so good is so good in that area, that this is this is pre uh, feedlots, and so that's how they were raised, and and it was the it's the best grass in the country, and there's four or five counties. Uh, there's Greene County, Westmoreland County, uh, Washington County, Armstrong County, and in the old days Allegheny, which where Pittsburgh is, but it when it was a when it was still uh, somewhat agrarian, so. <clears throat> The grass production has been there. When we started selling to Jean-Louis specifically, I asked him uh, what the best lamb in France was, where it was from, and he told me Poyac in the Bordeaux area. And and, uh, uh, he, uh, and then I asked him, I have to say this first, I asked him about the pre uh in Normandy, and he went, no, 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 no. And I said, pourquoi? And he said... Uh, this is fine if you want the lamb that tastes like the fish, which I was, that's a great <laughs> lie. But anyway, he, uh, his, favorite, his favorite lamb was one called Sister Mall, and it's in the lower Alps, and the elevation is 1,425 feet. Hmm. The elevation at our farm is 1,250. So it's very, very similar, very similar and the grasses are similar. And so in the spring we will have uh, a taste of onion and garlic naturally those are the grasses we have and then as the summer goes on we'll have anise and other herbs and then wild carrot and all these all these tastes are in there and and it is definitely a a a, a terroir that is there only in that area we had a, we had a, a lunch a luncheon this summer with a whole bunch of fancy wine people, and there was a lady beside me who had, uh, was, was having a rack of lamb, and she tasted the rib chop, and she said, she asked me, she said, what is this seasoned with? And I said, salt and pepper. And she said, no, there's something else, and I tasted it. And I said, that's the grass. That's what you, you weren't used to that. And that's what it is. So
4: when was that lamb slaughtered? So was that a a spring lamb? No, that
3: that would have been in uh, June. With the, the That was the
4: so it would have been a spring Yeah, the
3: muscaterry. Right. Yeah, it was so there she was tasting garlic and whatever yeah, grasses right. and come then up everything right was early. Coming right. up. it's yeah. just what was there.
4: So the seasonality really has an effect.
3: It does. It has a huge effect, and people people that get feedlot lamb, you don't have that. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It's very. It's it's like many things American. It's very, uh, uh, it's it's the same. Consistent. It's always consistent. But boring. But boring. Consistent, but boring. Yeah. Yeah, Well,
4: depends how you look at it, right? Yes. Well, and I was I was so surprised when you were talking about the um, the Queen Annes lace, which. You know, you look at the leaf the early little the little small yeah. leaves of the Queen Anne's and you see, well, gee, is that a carrot yeah. coming up in and my field or it is it queen is. it's a type of carrot, right? <laughs> yes, it's, it is. It's wild carrot. So if you look at if you see those fields of Queen Anne's lace and then imagine sheep grazing in there, and they're gonna taste a, yeah. like a sweet a sweet carrot. That's I, I think that's wonderful. I think it's such a, a a wonderful thing to think about when one is, you know, is purchasing or thinking about eating meat, and if you eat meat, you have to know where it comes from. That's true. And also how it's treated. Now, you've gotten into a, a certified humane program, right? And, um, Suki, I was asking you how many how many employees you have to draw all these years, and you said, on the farm it's just you, a couple of you and, and a lot of yous, No, you and yeah. the sheep, but <laughs> yeah, you the then, infamous. but then you bought a slaughterhouse and a, and a, a right. processing plant, right? Right. So, In
5: 1994, we purchased
4: our own slaughterhouse, which is every girl's dream, you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and there you, so there you, um, you have major control of how everything's finishing. Right. I mean, you've done right. all this hard work and paid all this attention onto how the sheep are fed. So, and the lambs are are. It's um, a very blooded. important
5: factor in the whole process of presenting a beautiful product. You can have the most beautiful product in the world, but if you take don't have control over the slaughter of it, or the cutting, or the presentation. How do you? And know? the hanging and the
3: There's aging. There's no guarantee and all those that
4: yeah.
5: what you put in there is going to come back to be what you want. But we have that control.
4: Well, you and of course you working with the product in the kitchens and cooking. And there are wonderful recipes in there that I just I adore. You have a lot of, unbeknownst to you, I think at the time, historic. Recipe or at least takes on historic recipes, right? After years and years of practice,
5: yeah. We um, didn't have it. We didn't have to have recipe testers. They're all tested. Yeah,
4: but then so you know firsthand whether the product is you know is good or not as you're cooking this.
5: But right. Plus, we make our own products at the plant. So I've been cooking those particular recipes, the prepared products, for years. You have one set recipe. You don't touch it. So when, something, so when it.
4: something's off, it's got to be... So you know when without, you get the yeah. barley
5: soup, it's the same today as it was 10 years ago, and it will be in 10 years from now.
3: And and, and it's really, uh, I'll throw this back to Suki, but it's she was the one that really forced us to buy the plant because we had we dealt with three or four other processors that would not cut things the way she wouldn't have cut mm. wouldn't age them the way we cut and then in this way, when you were talking about the humane issue, uh, we have total control over it, and my guys uh, have been with me for enough years where the the when we have people come in to inspect as we used to in the old days, and now the usDA does uh, with for for any sort of humane issues. The, the the animals don't even know anybody's there because we all know how to handle them. I mean, it's just great that Interesting. way.
4: Interesting. Yeah. Well, we have to throw out a couple of more famous names because you, you, as I say, were... Um, it, you've got a who's who list of, of contacts <laughs> and and uh, customers, but um, somebody whose help you enlisted or whose opinions you enlisted was Julia Child. Yes. And there's... Uh, of the terrific story about how she <laughs> she reduced Yusuki to tears, but yeah. with her <laughs> proclamation of the lamb was tough. But um, that was a real revelation to you. What tell tell me about one of you, you know, talk about that story. That was when we saw her at, at a convention, yeah, yeah, convention we, yeah, IACP. We were at the
3: IACP and <clears throat> it was in uh, uh, spring of nineteen ninety six and it was about two weeks after Easter, and we just sent her a leg of lamb. Uh, the first time we had we had sent our leg of lamb from this new plant we bought and uh, Suki went up to her and uh, said uh, Julia how did you like the leg of lamb and she
4: said well dear (laughs) <laughs> it was very tasty, but rather tough. And she was a, a real fan of yours from the from the beginning. Oh yes, right? always. absolutely. But
3: she also never minced words, right? And was very would tell one exactly what she thought that person should be told, politely, but made the point. And uh, so we went to um, uh, to the um, meat lab at State College and uh, Penn State and uh, started saying we had this problem with uh, uh, with the lamb being tough. And the reason was that uh, because they're grass-fed lambs and they don't have a lot of cover over the back. A lot of fat. A lot of fat, exact, thank you. Is that when you, after they're slaughtered and the temperature is about 100 degrees, if you put them into a cooler at 35 degrees, which... In today's world, people do, uh, the, because there is not a lot of insulation over the back. The animals will come down in temperature. The carcass will come down in temperature too quickly. And it, it, will, it, call, it causes a condition called cold shortening, where the muscles contract. So in explaining it to a chef, it's the same thing that a chef does when he takes the meat out of the fridge. And lets it go to room temperature before he cooks it. It's kind of the so same reverse. thing, yeah. he, right? Yeah. And so these, so they chill down very slowly, and um, and they're tender and they're great. And she was the 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 other thing about it, and really, is the reason we became such good friends. Is after that happened, and we sent her lamb afterwards, and she never endorsed anything, but she wrote us a letter saying it was the best lamb we, she ever had. Mm-hmm. and That's fine. Makes me very happy, but uh, we became her go-to person for any of these issues, and it was that was neat because we knew more than she did about mm-hmm. one thing, mm-hmm. and she was such a student of food that uh, that she always said she learned every day, and she really was a person who felt that way. I absolutely, think.
4: absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and Suki, you. I, so we don't run out of time here, because I, the important part, I think, of the business, um, well, you have to have the good lamb, right? The excellent lamb. But uh, I'm amazed that you, uh, for so many years you have been um, producing the dish, you know, dishes, prepared foods that are sold on. You sell them through your website.
5: Right. Right. What happened? Well, it really came out of necessity because in the early days of our business, we were selling, <clears throat> excuse me, selling the rack and the saddle, the middle meats, because that was popular, and there was the rest of the animal. And we did. We talked to Jean Louis about this very problem because he would order, you know, six lamb backs, which is racks and saddles of six lambs. What do I do with the rest of the lamb? I didn't have. Nobody else wanted the rest of the lamb, mm-hmm. so we came up with ideas, and he told us, uh, well, we I was making us one stew, and he came to me, and we worked on a stew recipe, and
4: so I created a stew with him. Interesting, and I mean, that's, that, that's now you don't have to do it necessarily, but it's just, I'm sure people clamor after they, these dishes. I, yeah, it. I still make all those yeah. products. I have a lamb pie,
5: which is a pot pie, and... Two stews and a lamb barley soup. And also, three we have different sausages. three different sausages. Mm. So Red marguez. All, all the uh, you know all pieces of the lamb are in use.
4: Well, when you did um, <clears throat> the, the recipes, well, you had me at, at the slow cooked shoulder. I mean, you know, that's. <laughs> no, <it's wonderful. laughs> I read that recipe and went, okay, there I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the recipes are all very, very I don't want to say simple. They're not simple, but easy. They are simple. They're very approachable. But obviously you're working with such a good product, it doesn't need a lot of help and pushing along the way.
5: So, And you don't want to disguise the flavor either. Right? You want the flavor to come through. And so I think that's another thing from Jean-Louis is it's all about the ingredients. And so you don't want to mask it with all kinds of flavors of things that don't go. You right. don't need that.
4: So when you want to have that meat-forward dinner then yeah. and then you just then make it then do it don't as you say don't right push it to the back we corner. always say
5: there's nothing in these recipes that you can't understand most of the <laughs> most of the ingredients you have right on hand
4: oh. well one thing we did talk about before we went on the air um, and I want to mention it again is this all comes at uh, a cost and of course that cost has to be met in your sales or else you would be out of business right um is there is there much resistance in the market to the cost of of your product um uh,
3: <clears throat> i think uh i i don't think as much now is in the past i i think that uh in the last 20 or 30 years with uh with more interest in farm to table, more interest in the food channel and everything, just it, it just people are thinking more about <clears throat> where good food comes from, right. and people are becoming what my one friend calls a flexitarian, mm-hmm. where they'll eat meat as long as they know where the meat comes from, and they're willing to pay for it if it's so. That way, I think it's it's better, um, but yes, it's it's a. It's it's never been a lucrative business, but it's cool. You know, <laughs> is kind of the way you have to look at it. I mean, um, and and we've had a wonderful time, meaning so many wonderful people, and really, and this is really why I wrote the book. I think is that it was at the start of this change, of thinking so seriously now about food and and uh, where it comes from, and
4: if you want good food. You have to pay have for to it, pay for I, and I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of um, this country, we got in in sort of a mode of, of supermarket mentality, and it's like, oh, I can get this much cheaper here. Yeah, you yeah. will, but what are you getting? You know, what are you eating? And you know, so treat yourself once in a while and have you know, a very good product. Eat vegetables the other time, but <laughs> that's right. Have a very good product, and uh, and I, and Suki, I, I mentioned. Um, some that you sort of unbeknownst to you initially but but um by the by you ended up making some historic recipes i'm thinking particularly the lamb paprikash
0: the, oh right
4: yeah <laughs> <laughs> when we did research about that yeah uh, i mean and, and i'm thinking of you know eastern european relatives and and how yeah right. we always had um paprika and and lamb centers in so many of those stews yeah. and, and dishes you know, really it's just a wonderful product and people
5: don't understand that you can substitute lamb for a lot of recipes that they have most of my recipes you could were could have been made with beef i suppose
4: and i'm sure many of the in america they would be typical made american beef. cookbooks right. had them as you know, exactly. well right. shepherd's pie was was you know that, yeah, that, that's what <laughs> drives me crazy. And shepherd's pie, yeah. You, you know, you think of what did you eat of sort of a clean out the refrigerator dish in my family. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly under
5: anything under the mashed potatoes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right,
4: but it was it was who's a shepherd you mentioned? Yeah, Jay. who's a shepherd and they made they raised lamb and they and
3: that's what they that's what they ate. And really, when I was when I was researching goulash. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the same thing. So it's similar. And when we did the the, the, the uh, lamb paprikash at the um, uh, see, Pennsylvania Farm Show, this was two years ago, we did it as the main dish. That we're asked to go on stage uh. and do something. And there were so many, because Pennsylvania being Pennsylvania, we have a large uh, population of Eastern Europeans, and all these all these young people came in and said this is like my grandmother's I got to take it to her and it was
4: because they all had that yeah. when they were young and they loved it it's yeah. great interesting well there are just so many wonderful stories so much history there of Thank you. And for you i mean in your own personal history it is you know did you ever think did you ever think when you were kids, falling in love back in college, <laughs> that you were going to end up <laughs> no. where no. you are today. No, yeah, it's Not it's, at all. it's amazing the paths that that we take and where we end up. But yeah. we've met the most fascinating people over the years. It's we've been really lucky that way. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. Wonderful. I'm sure that you have. And well, I mean, and you had to work at other jobs along the time, and you raised yes. three kids along with doing all this too. But you now you end up. This is your full time. Full-time occupation. This is it. This has been our full-time life. Yes. (laughs) Right. Come home from work and work the farm. That's right. Well, and as as one very sage um, farmer told me one time, uh, saying, "Well, maybe on your day off, you could come over and help me do." And he goes, "If you have live animals, there are no days. There are no days off. That's that's true. That's right. And you and and you included in your book some very some very poignant tales about about that and yeah." And it's, you know, it's a tough business and hence the name Coyotes in the Pasture and Wolves at the Door. And that's the name of the book that all your stories are contained we've had in. That, we've had that name for a long, long time. Yeah. Filled yeah. in the Just story. waiting to yes. fill it in, right?
1: Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh,
4: that's wonderful. Well, I urge anyone who's who has ever been tempted by the idea of owning one of those romantic mm. farms. oh, so maybe yeah. we'll have a few sheep read this story. It's wonderful. Coyotes in the Pasture and Wolves at the Door. And along with it, you get wonderful recipes. I mean, every little... Little section is is um, separated by a, a, yet again another great recipe and, uh, and it's John and Suki Jamison and it's JamisonFarm.com. There's yeah. you know there's a wonderful um, short video that I think Stone Barnes uh, Dan Barber and, uh, had yes. Stone Barnes do for you. In anything that we haven't covered, it really it just shows John in the pasture with um, with lambs with the sheep and a dog. And a dog, and a yeah. dog, and so many great stories about the dog. Um, but it, it really describes what, you know, what, what raising sheep in the meadows can do. Yeah. And I urge people to to take a look at that at jameson.com. Thank and don't you. forget, coyotes in the pasture and wolves. We won't go into the wolves at the door. No. And let them find out. But <laughs> th- that's called life. You know? Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much thank for joining. You thank you for having you. us. This yeah, is it's great. It's been a pleasure. And I thank really you for it. listening. And be sure to join to tune in again and join us for another great Taste of the Past. you.